Good morning, everyone. Hold on, there's always a little minute here where I have to get adjusted. Okay, good to see you, and good to see those of you who are online. I'm just going to mention ahead of time for the online folks that if you're watching live, uh, we're going to have communion after the service, so you can maybe run and get your juice and uh, cracker now. Um, so today is the second Sunday of Advent, and um, you may have noticed that we have our Advent candles up. We don't make a big deal about it, but uh, basically it's, Advent is a time of darkness, of waiting, of longing for the light of the world to arrive, and so we symbolize that with candles, and on Christmas we'll get to light the Christ candle in the middle. And uh, our Advent series, we're trying to tie the art and the messages, not tightly together, but basically to um, remind us of how much Advent speaks to the world today and also how we can see the world today in the ancient world and vice versa. So that is our goal. And uh, last week, uh, April Lynn uh, kicked us off with uh, seeing Advent through, the eye, uh, through Mary's life, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah's life. And uh, this Sunday, this morning, I'm gonna, we're going to look at Advent through Joseph's story. So uh, I do want to sort of set the world that uh, Jesus was born into uh, right now, which is um, that it was to help us all imagine what a complicated world it was, what a difficult world it was that Jesus was born into. Oh, and a world where it was difficult to hope. And the reason I just said, oh, is I wanted to do this first. This is the um, book that we're kind of using that is helping us um, understand Advent uh, and what it was and connected to first century Palestine. Uh, this is a really good book. We actually serious, well, I seriously considered just standing here and reading the book to you over the four weeks because it's, it's, the writer writes beautifully and has been so helpful. So um, uh, we as teachers are using the best book as kind of the basis for the series. But I also did want to bring out this book too, which I read about uh, a couple months ago. This was our speaker at the Christmas tea. She wrote this book. And this is another way to uh, open our eyes and connect the world around us to the stories that we hear in Scripture. So I just wanted to bring those to your mind. Okay, now I'm officially starting. Sort of, except I always have this hair issue. Sorry. Okay. The land of uh, Judea belonged to the Roman Empire. Romans called this land at various times Syria, Palestine, Judea. In the time period that we're talking about, Herod was appointed governor and he was rewarded uh, by the Romans with the title King of the Jews because Herod was so brutally successful in putting down Jewish rebellions against Rome and against Roman, Roman, Rome's puppet leaders. Herod, throughout his tenure as King of the Jews, utilized secret police to spy on his own people. He relied on Jewish collaborators to collect taxes for him. 
he made sure that the Jewish elites in the priestly class and in the business classes benefited from his rule and therefore would um, contribute to keeping the status quo as is and not uh, be, take part in rebellions. He had a personal militia of thousands of soldiers for his own protection, and he was ruthless in maintaining power by killing off members of his own family, which April Lynn mentioned last Sunday. He killed his brother-in-law, his wife, and three of his sons. Even the Romans, who were known for their brutality, were appalled at Herod's callousness. Herod taxed the people of Palestine heavily. He needed to collect taxes as tribute for his Roman overlords, and he also needed to pay for the militia and the secret police. And he tried to curry favor with Rome by building from scratch entire new cities and then naming them for important Roman people, especially emperors. He also went on a uh, countrywide um, kind of building improvement plan by build, uh, um, in current cities, building these lavish uh, stadiums, palaces. He dug new deep water harbors uh, on the sea. He built fortresses and amphitheaters, and he did everything in the latest uh, Roman style. And the taxes paid for all of this. Herod knew his own people hated him, which is why he needed his own militia so that he would not be assassinated by his own people. To win over his own people, he decided to expand the temple in Jerusalem and make it the most amazing, the most lavish, the most beautiful temple known anywhere. But of course, that meant, uh, that took money, and that meant more taxes, and taxes to uh, continued to rise. All these endeavors clearly burdened the people. They took out loans in order to pay their taxes so that they would not lose their ancestral land and ended up losing their land anyway. They sold themselves into slavery so that they had money to feed their families. But more and more families during this time lost their land, becoming either tenant farmers or agricultural workers hired on an as-needed basis, like our art today, or uh, as day laborers on one of Herod's uh, building projects. In fact, that may be what Joseph actually was, a day laborer who was hired out to the nearby cities to work on one of Herod's projects. And I'm saying all this to paint a picture uh, that life in first century Palestine was a time of fear and insecurity. There was a lack of opportunity. There was no, no one had the ability to uh, change or let alone fix their circumstances. Which brings us to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, and that's where we're going to start today. Matthew begins with a genealogy. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who we know as Bathsheba, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram. And the reason we end there is because there are at least 30 more generations listed in Matthew's gospel, and which would be about 10 more slides. And so we're going to skip to the end. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the first thing we notice about this genealogy is that there are a lot of really hard to pronounce names in there. And the second thing we might notice, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, is there are a lot of messed up, even scandalous people in that genealogy. For example, excuse me, Abraham. Abraham tried to pass off his wife as his sister twice, giving her to a wealthy and powerful man just to keep himself safe. He also abandoned his first child. Now, the list, the entire list, but most of the people I'm going to mention, or most of the, well, you'll see. The list includes con artists, murderers, adulterers, liars, idol worshipers, Gentiles, polygamists, someone who pretended to be a sex worker and one who might have been a sex worker. And the reason I had bolded the women's names in there is all four of the women mentioned in this genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite were involved in some type or some level of sex scandal. The Jewish annotated New Testament says that this genealogy is unusual in citing women and non-Jews and in alluding to morally questionable circumstances. Why did Matthew give us this list? Well, for one, this genealogy reveals Jesus' ancestral connection to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. It reveals his connection to King David, from, whom the promise, from whose line the promised Messiah would come. It reveals Jesus' connection to God's promises It connects Jesus to the prophetic narrative of the coming Messiah. And it sets up the story that Matthew is going to relate next, the story of Matthew and Joseph, because it reminds us that God often works through questionable circumstances. And by naming those four specific women in the genealogy, Matthew prepares us to see Mary through that lens of God's unfolding plan. 
The genealogy also sets Jesus in stark contrast to Herod. Herod, who claimed to be king of the Jews. As April Lynn mentioned last Sunday, Herod's claims to be Jewish were suspect. Herod did not have a pedigree that extended back to the patriarchs. This genealogy gives me hope. I'm very grateful that God works through messy people, dark times, scandals, scoundrels, and hopeless people. It helps me to realize that none of us are too messed up to be part of God's unfolding plan. Matthew ends the list with Jesus, or I'm sorry, Matthew ends the list with Joseph, the husband of Mary, and then moves into telling the story of the first advent from Joseph's perspective. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph had entered into a legal contract with Mary's family. He had most likely paid a bride price to Mary's father. Everything about this uh, betrothal was legal and binding on both parties. This betrothal period could last months or even years. Sometimes the man needed more time to come up with the money for the bride price. Sometimes the young girl had not yet gone through puberty. But clearly understood by everyone was that it was a legal transfer of property, and by that I mean the young woman was the property, from one family to another. At the betrothal, before she goes to live with her husband, she is considered legally married, even though she continues to live in her father's house. She could not belong to another man, the man could not belong to another woman, unless they were legally divorced. The wedding ceremony meant only that the betrothed woman, accompanied by a beautiful procession and the members of the town, was brought from her father's house to the house of the groom, and then the legal tie with him was consummated. But in this story, before the wedding, during the betrothal period, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. She has this very iffy, very lame story about an angel. Joseph's reputation is on the line. Everyone knows they're betrothed. If the news about her pregnancy gets out, people will draw one of two conclusions, or maybe both conclusions. Joseph either impregnated her before the uh, ceremony, or Mary isn't the chaste girl that everyone expects her to be. Joseph decides to divorce her, legally releasing himself from having to live with her. He has a couple options in how to divorce her. He is legally entitled to a public trial 
with the elders of the community. After all, he's the aggrieved party. Mary and her family have not lived up to their end of the bargain. If he goes through with a public trial, uh, it would enable Joseph to get back his uh, bride price and let the world know that he was not the one who had shamefully impregnated his betrothed before the wedding. A public trial, however, would shame Mary and her family and possibly result in Mary's death because she could be stoned for adultery. Now, Matthew tells us rather pointedly that Joseph was a just man. The word that Matthew uses, dikaios, in Greek, can mean several things, such as zealous for the law, righteous, or to describe someone who is fair or treats people equitably, which is what you would expect someone who is zealous for the law to be. Being a just man, a righteous man, Joseph decides that rather than a public trial, he will just quietly sign divorce papers with Mary's dad and let the family keep the bride price. That way Mary isn't a financial burden to the family. And frankly, this is the best-case scenario for the two families. Mary's family and Mary avoids public shame and embarrassment for a while, right? Things are going to show. But um, at least it's not the trial. Mary will suffer the most in this arrangement, but she spared a public trial and spared a possible death sentence. She will most likely never marry, but maybe the child that she has will be able to help support her in her old age. Having decided on this plan, Joseph goes to bed with a clear conscience. But instead of a good night's sleep, he has a dream. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The Joseph who went to bed that night was a just man who had some regard or sensitivity to Mary's situation. The Joseph who went to bed that night was a man who could sleep with a clear conscience, knowing that he had fixed the situation so that he would remain in the community an honorable man, a righteous man, and Mary could avoid the worst-case scenario that a public trial would have mandated. But the Joseph who got up in the morning the next day was someone else entirely. By choosing to obey the angel, to take Mary as his wife, he is now fully wrapped up in her shame. The stigma surrounding her is now surrounding them. He has implicated himself as the cause of her way too early pregnancy. He can no longer be seen in the community as a righteous man. Our author from this book writes, 
So Joseph and Mary limped their way through the betrothal. He entered into her disgrace. Now the questions that surrounded them were about their piety and purity. They shouldered the shame together. The men at the city gate likely demeaned Joseph, no longer thinking him righteous. But God had invited him into the heart of the divine deliverance operation, along with its social stigma. Indeed, following the unborn Christ already had consequences. When Mary gave birth to Joseph, Joseph named him as his son in obedience to the angel's instruction. There was an adoption, a public recognition that the child was his and would carry his name into the world. It showed, as Matthew intended, that Joseph accepted Mary into his cherished lineage and Jesus too. Sorry. Joseph's yes to God, Joseph's compassion, his willingness to tie his life to Mary gave her hope and safety and security in an incredibly complicated time and situation. Joseph redefined what it means to be a just man, to be righteous. In taking Mary, he redefined holiness. His yes to God redefined what a righteous person looks like, what a righteous person does. A righteous man or woman, a just man or woman, does not merely or blindly follow the law or the cultural, cultural and social norms and then pat themselves on the back saying, I've done what is right. The problem is fixed. Instead, a righteous person, a just person, works to repair and to restore what is broken. A just person works with God to mend the world. To mend and to repair, to come alongside someone and walk with them in their life, is a creative act, a regenerative act, a reimagining act, a sacred act that both restores and creates new possibilities. Do you know who else in the New Testament is called just? Jesus. In Acts, the author of Acts calls just O-D-K-I-O-S, the just one. And this is the Jesus who entered the world with Mary as his mother. Mary who understood that God was doing something new. And Mary who sang a song of liberation and justice, even as this caused incredible turmoil and pain in her life. Jesus entered the world with Joseph as his father. Joseph who clearly wrestled and redefined what it meant to be, live a just life. Joseph whose life was completely upturned when he was forced to flee with his family across the border to Egypt and live as a refugee from Herod's murderous efforts to kill this newborn king. These are the ones who raised Jesus the just one. He who entered the world, walked with us, died for us, to repair and to restore us. As Kelly writes, the first advent revealed that leaning into God's coming justice puts people at odds with society's and religion's definition of holiness. 
The first Advent recorded in history and held in our collective Christian memory is not a singular event, a once and for all peace. Advent is continually embodied, incessantly incarnated, always pushing us to embody God's peace in troubled times. That's all I have, so will you pray with me? Holy One, Just One, we live in a world of beauty and pain. We see your glory, but we also see illness and war, hatred, poverty, so much more. We don't always have the strength to walk alongside others, to cross borders, to share burdens, but you do. So we pray for your loving presence. We pray for the courage to be faithful in the face of difficulty. We pray that you will meet anger with we pray that we will be able to meet anger with mercy and meet fear with compassion. Guide us in being just as we work alongside you to mend, repair, and restore this world. Amen. We're going to take communion a few minutes. Um, the way it works is uh, the band will start playing, and as you feel ready, as you feel led, you'll come up to the center. Uh, ushers, you can come up to now. Uh, you can come up to the center, and uh, you'll take the cracker, gluten-free, the juice, alcohol-free. Go back to your seat, if possible, along the side aisles, and um, when you're ready, take communion. Uh, also, it would be helpful after the service if you put it your communion cup in the dish tray. That'd be awesome. So here I have a few uh, communion words here. Communion is a church practice that all Christians share everywhere. For some, it's a ceremony of remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. For some of us, it's an enacted metaphor of what Jesus' life and death accomplished, again, for us. Body broken, blood shed for us. For some, it's a time of confession and repentance. For some, it's a time of praise and gratitude. Communion is all of those things. But most of all, most importantly of all, it's a sacrament a doorway, a portal of God's presence, an outward sign of the grace given to all of us, the grace that mends and repairs and restores us so that we may be and do the same for the world. So we're here today, this morning, trusting the grace that makes all things well. Again, will you pray with me? Holy and just one, your presence is here, made visible in this juice and this bread. We thank you for your grace and the love that sustains us, for this community, this body, for bringing us together. Help us to know you and know ourselves, seeing each other as you see us, Lord. Amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.